Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is December the 9th, 2021. This is episode 2,998 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Thursday, Thursday, Thursday. Time for the Monster Show of the Week, the Expert Council Q&A. Uh, many of you guys, this is your favorite show. A, a new fan favorite has been out back with Jack. We will be doing Out Back with Jack tomorrow. I have a hell of a lineup for you. I'm going to tell you some things tomorrow that are going to blow your mind, but I think you're going to hear some really great stuff today. I have a really great cross-section of the Expert Council lined up. Remember, if you want to submit a question for Expert Council members, and I do have council members that need questions, like Amy Dingman needs some homeschool and parenting questions. Dixie Mills needs some questions about backpacking. Who else needs some questions? Jeff Lawton. Ain't had a question for Jeff Lawton. we got... Number one permaculturist in the world, hanging on, waiting for your questions. We could use some for him and some other folks. You can go to the About tab on the Survival Podcast, scroll down to or select from underneath there, uh, meet the expert council, see all the council members, and send your questions in for them. What do we got today? Ron Paul's Liberty Highlights. And again, I am, I am so blessed that we have Ron as an official partner at TSP now. We again have uh, all three of the crew weighing in with some things from the Liberty Highlights this week. Uh, Ron tells us how the tide against COVID tyranny may actually be turning, at least here in America. I think it's turning to the dark side in some other parts of the world. Looking at you, Austria and Australia, uh, both, though, are disarmed societies, and that may have something to do with it. Not that Dr. Paul puts it that way, but I think the underpinnings of the fact that we're an armed society and we have not been disarmed is part of why we can stand along with our form of government, which is a Republican form of government. Not Republican Party, but a republic of member states with individual autonomy. Dan McAdams talks about how America constantly blusters with foreign policy because, yeah, we're not doing it all right. We're being really, really, really stupid right now. Dan will talk about that a little bit. And Chris Rossini will anchor their segment with why the key to defeating tyrants is thinking differently than they do. Fighting fire with fire is not usually the way to go. Sometimes it works. In this situation, it won't. Have you ever wanted to become a great presenter? You know, Maybe you want to start a podcast, or maybe you want to start speaking in front of groups. It's a really great way to build your brand, but presentations and doing them right and doing them in a way that actually not only educates people, entertains people, and keeps their attention, Nicole Sauce will talk about doing just that. Derek Pietro. We'll talk about choosing a generator based on brand and also wanting a tri-fuel machine. Darby Simpson is going to give you thoughts on just doing it in the words of the once great Nike that has now fallen into wokeness. But just do what? How about farming? Great bit of encouragement from uh, Darby Simpson here near the end of the year. Dr. Ken Berry will talk to you about tracking your ketones, knowing if you are actually in ketosis what can you do to do that, and what can you trust? Those little pea strips, do they work? No, they don't. Do you even need to bother? Dr. Ken will talk about whether or not you need to bother, and if you're going to bother, whether you need to or not, what to use. Paul Wheaton from the wilds of Montana will talk about composting, the Ruth Stout composting method, which is a lot easier. He's going to tell you what it is and why maybe you should care. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit on a uh, quote of the day today. From John Muir. That um, might be counter to what a lot of people are thinking today when we use the term sheep. 
sheep. We can actually learn something from sheep. John Muir once said, sheep, like people, are ungovernable when hungry. So we think of sheep as just being easily led, whether from field to field or to the slaughter, and just following the leader and being really easy to control. And then we draw an analogy to the average crowd of people. Well, in the absence of blood, bread and circuses, people become ungovernable really quickly. There's actually a benefit to this. And here's what it's going to revolve around when I get to my segment. I suggest you choose your hunger before your hunger chooses you. With that, let's go ahead and dive straight on into it, leading off with the Ron Paul Liberty highlights for the week. Hearing again from, in this order, Dr. Ron Paul, followed by Dan McAdams, and anchoring the segment, Chris Rossini. I want to just emphasize one point that we made early in the show, and that is the courts have been uh, somewhat very, uh, helpful to us, and uh, just this recent court ruling means that the mandate uh, efforts by the president, the brakes are being placed on there. That is good, and the pressure has to continue because their, their whole goal and their understanding is that they have a right to go around the Constitution, which is the way Washington works. So, yes, uh, the, there there's some, been some good judges ruling correctly that the authority to just mandate and tell people what they have to do with masks, even though their jobs are lost and their health is injured by all these rules. Uh, it, it means, though, that uh, we, we have to continue to fight that we have because I do believe that truth does win out in the end. And people will want to strive uh, for more information. I think election year is coming up. I think it's a ripe time for finding out what the real polling is, and I think the real polling may be that there's much more determination to restore some decent order and more freedom for the individual from what we found out in Virginia. So, and, and I would say the results in Florida are great, and we've had some improvement here in Texas. So there, there are people moving in the right direction. So there's reason for us to continue. Everybody who comes to the conclusion that we have too much of this mandates from the government, not just over COVID, but too many mandates altogether in everything that the government does, which means that if you have a true understanding and put that together with, you know, an understanding of what uh, the morality is of personal liberty and why it's beneficial and why it happens to be constitutional, I think if you come to that conclusion, I happen to have a belief that we all have a personal responsibility to do our best for our own self-interest to spread that message. But in the meantime, it's a message that could help a lot of other people, you know, survive the problems that we have to face. The reality is that projection is really the only consistent U.S. foreign policy. Yeah. Accusing other countries of doing what the U.S. is actually doing, aggression, overthrowing democracies, putting troops on borders. Uh, that's the only consistent U.S. foreign policy. Let's put up this next clip, though, because this is also how the media plays the game, too. They love the bluster. They love to really puff up. Here's NBC News. Biden to warn Putin of very real costs. Should Russia take military action against Ukraine? Well, what exactly might that be, NBC News? Are we going to go have a nuclear war because there's a border dispute six, 7,000 miles away? Uh, and as you say, the next one, let's put this up, too, because this is from... Zero Heads, and it's also Dave DeCamp of Antiwar.com. Uh, Biden to warn Putin is Biden to warn Putin. U.S. is prepared to move U.S. troops near Russia's border. Now, is that not aggression? To me, it looks like aggression. But the thing is, Dr. Paul, 
What can they do? Are, is Biden willing to start? I mean, he's done a lot of dumb things so far in his presidency. Starting a world war is not one of them, thankfully. Is he really willing to do that? I don't think so. But we do know one thing, that Putin is clear. If Ukraine attacks Donbass, Russia will end it. And it'll end it very quickly. Because the Ukrainian army is a lot like the Afghanistan army, right? <laughs> uh, as soon as the st shots start getting fired, they're going to disappear. Um, I could be wrong. I seriously doubt that Russia will invade Donbass out of the blue, saying, hey, this looks like fun. Let's do this today. You know, I just everything that we've seen from Putin for all of his faults, he doesn't do dumb things like that. And if he did, I would be shocked. You know, on our show, we discuss huge problems. Uh, they're basically people trying to do the impossible. And we basically point out that they're not going to. And here's why. Uh, but we have to, at the same time, uh, always think the opposite of how they think. You know, because every one of us, our entire life, we only deal with what is right in front of us at the moment. We never deal with the world as a whole or government as a whole or crony corporations as a whole. We only deal with what is in front of us. And that's, it is, that is different for each and every one of us. So when these tyrants and authoritarians put up these barriers, you know, people say, oh, okay, well, I'll do this instead. They put up another barrier, I'll do this instead. So there's alternatives for everything in our local situations. Right now, we're seeing people actually quitting their jobs because that's the only alternative that they see. But at least that alternative, at least it exists. You know, when there's a life vest, we can't complain, oh, I don't like the color of that life vest. No, at least there's a life vest and you got to take it. So we have to stay focused on what's in front of us as these individuals who are so mistaken and misled uh, try to build their Tower of Babel, you know, these globalists. What is also happening at the same time is people are scattering. They're focusing on local. They're focusing on their, uh, you know, taking care of themselves. And this is all for the good, because once this big global nonsense comes apart, people will be focused in right places. All right, moving on, let us hear from somebody on a totally different subject. How do you become a great presenter? This is, this is a skill, and some people do have kind of an, an innate ability, the same way that you might walk up to somebody, you walk up to two people and hand them both the exact same acoustic guitar, sit them down and say, we're going to learn four chords and how to put together a few scales and try to play a simple song. There are people that will pick that up almost instantly, and then there are people that will struggle for days or weeks to be able to even just get out a few chords and not have them sound like ass. I happen to be the second one when it comes to playing a guitar. I happen to be the first one it comes to, when it comes to presenting, and I don't think necessarily that makes you the best person to teach how to do a presentation because when things come innately to you, you tend to undervalue the, the need to develop the skill. Now, someone who I know is a great presenter and a great teacher on how to present is Nicole Sauce. Well, we had a fellow expert council member, Tim Toolman Cook, who's trying to improve his presentation skills, reach out to Nicole and say, how do you develop a great presentation? And this is for everybody. I don't care if you're not a content creator, if you're not, like, being able to present well changes everything. Whether it's a PowerPoint in a boardroom, or whether it's discussing why you deserve a raise with your boss, getting the next job, 
getting somebody to go on a date with you. It's all one level or another presentation. We're going to come at it from the professional standpoint, but this skill set is one of the most valuable you can have in your life. With that, Nicole, take it away. Well, hello, TSP. Nicole Sauce here with the Living Free in Tennessee podcast and Holler Roast Coffee. I've got a question in from Tim Cook. Tim saw my underground networking presentation that happened at Jack Spierko's workshop, which if you want to check it out on YouTube, you can. And he wondered, hey, Nicole, what do you do to prepare presentations? That presentation was pure fire. And I know you said you put a lot of effort into presentations you set up. What do you do to get ready for something like the presentation you did at Jack's? Well, Tim... Here is the answer to your question. I am in my late 40s, and I've been working on presentation skills since my 20s. So the first thing is practice and review makes perfect. That may be hard to hear for somebody who is starting out, but I know you're not starting out. But, you know, whenever you start, that's when you start getting better. But the key thing here is you need to review what you're doing. If you do a presentation, make sure you get a video of it so you can go back and look and say, okay, what could have been better? What went well? What am I good at? What's What am I doing with my body? Am I like doing some weird nervous tick where I shake my hands really funny or what? Practice and review makes perfect. That said, the second thing is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I probably will say the word um sometime in this segment, and then I will hear myself say um. And if I let myself stumble over my feet and stop speaking and go blah, 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 I'll start over, that's wrong. If you say um or a weird like or you say the wrong thing or you get a little tongue-tied, just keep going. Because no speaker is perfect. Everybody I know who is a great communicator occasionally says the opposite of what they meant to say when they're explaining something. Yep, it happens. They don't even know they did it until they go back and review and, and hear themselves say, oh, I meant let the air pressure out of the tire and not put the air pressure into the tire. And usually when somebody makes a mistake like that, those listening to it, they know what you meant. It's not a big deal. I think... The best speakers are able to speak and present without being just nailed to a script. And that brings, how do I actually organize my presentations up? I start usually with a concept phase. And the concept is, I want to do something. In this case, it was underground networking. I think it's really important that we build our underground networks up as much as possible. But the thing is, The underground network is already there and it's been there your whole life. You just need it now. As tyranny goes up, then your need for underground networks go up, right? So that was the concept phase. And I, I said, okay, I'm going to do this thing on underground networking. And I walked around working on projects around the homestead while I thought about this. And I thought about examples of underground networks like the Underground Railroad, Christianity early on, all sorts of different examples and Those were all swimming around in my head. And then I went on to my next phase, some research. I went back and looked at how those underground networks were organized because I had the idea and I knew about these different things, but I hadn't really dug deeply. And then I found all sorts of controversy about them. It was really fun, that, that, that particular phase. And then I walked around the homestead doing more projects. I think what you're starting to hear here, Tim, it took time. And then once I had it really solidified, I walked up to a giant dry erase board and I made an outline and I just wrote examples of underground networks, the important things about those networks, what they accomplished 
for freedom or for the people in the networks, those sorts of things. I thought about what roles people would have, and it was a big amalgam of crap on my dry erase board. That's what usually happens to me at this point in the creative process. And then I went back and I read some more examples and walked around the homestead doing some some projects. And at the end of the day, I looked at it and I wrote the following on my dry erase board. And this happens to me in almost every presentation I write. What's my point? And I thought about it and I thought about the inputs. And this was a really bottom up process. And I realized my point is, as governments and society becomes more restrictive, underground networks become stronger and a more important part of your life for your support network. And that's supported by the fact that they're already there and ways to interact with them. And the really cool thing about underground networks is if you start looking into them, you see how they have overthrown. They've overthrown tyrannical governments and cultures and people as as they grow in strength. That's really, really cool. I was like, okay, now I know my point. So I walked around the homestead some more. And this is an important part for me in the presentation. I brought in a couple people and said, I'm going to talk you through this outline. You tell me what you think. They thought of examples of underground networking. They asked me questions about stuff that didn't quite make sense to them. They thought the point was strong enough. And then I chose which examples I was going to put in the presentation. I completely rewrote the outline to include main point, sub points, specific examples. And for each of those, and this is the important thing, I didn't write out big paragraphs of what I would say. I just wrote the example and the thing about that example that was important. And then I had to know my material well enough to know when I see those two words or three words on a piece of paper that, yep, that's what I'm going to talk about. Because when you get to that point in a presentation, it frees you up when you actually give the presentation to look at your audience and respond to their body language. And if they want you to, to stay more on that example from, you know, the, the French resistance in World War II, for example, you can stay there because you know enough about it that you can stay there. And you can explain what that point is, right? So I refine the outline and I finalize it. And then where I go from there is I decide what visual aids I want. The thing I see most people do wrong in presentations is they have a slide with a title and point, 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 title, point, 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 point. And it's really their outline, only it's up on a PowerPoint. And that kind of works in a webinar situation where you're going to go away with the file and it's your reference, but that's lazy presenting, in my opinion. What's better is to think about what visual aids will support this presentation, but not be used as a crutch for me to remember what in the world I'm going to say. <laughs> I need to know my material well enough to know what I'm going to say. And in that way, if the PowerPoint projector breaks and the internet goes out, you can still give your presentation. It's still going to be great. And those visual aids, we're going to augment it, but whatever, they're not there. It's a great way to help people see things and remember things, to have something. But if you have a lot of busy slides, they can read your slides faster than you can read your slides to them. And that becomes then an annoying habit of a presenter. And then finally, Tim, what I've started doing recently is... I draw icons for the major parts of my presentation 
So because if I can refine my bullet points or my outline to visual aids for myself, then I know that I know it really well. And that is one step away from standing up in front of people, giving the whole presentation without any outline in front of me and knocking it out of the park. And that's my personal ultimate goal. I think the thing about being a good presenter is anybody who puts the time in can be a great presenter. People who are naturally inclined to do that start with a leg up, but if they never work on improving and never find a system that works for themselves, eventually the people who may not be naturally inclined but who work on it steadily will surpass them. That's the interesting thing about presentations. Of course, many of you know who listen to me in other venues that I am launching presentation coaching next year as part of the offerings at livingfreeintennessee.com. And I hope to make as many great presenters out of everybody who want to build that into their life. Thanks so much for the question. That was kind of a fun one for me to ask. I'm really glad you liked the underground networking presentation that happened at Jack's. That's going to be the foundation for a lot of what we're doing in 2022 because as the controls over our lives get stronger, the underground network also needs to strengthen. And it's time for us to take action on that. So we need to be networking with each other and building out what we have to support each other. It's really important to me. And I know it'll be important to you as your worlds all change as part of the natural flow of what we're doing in our society right now. Christmas is coming, though. And if you want to find a great gift for somebody that's consumable and doesn't add clutter to their house, we've got awesome gift offerings over at hollerroast.com. Just go to hollerroast.com. You can click on the, the gift idea link in the upper area, and we've got mug and a pound, mug and six ounces, sampler packs, Jack's bourbon cooled Sumatra, and we can gift wrap anything. Lots of things to choose from for the holidays. With the slowness of shipping among FedEx, UPS, and USPS, though, you need to get your orders in by the 15th of this month. That deadline's coming fast, so that can all be found over at hollerroast.com. Make it a great week. So great stuff from Nicole. I'll give you my short, short version of, of how I put together a presentation when I have to do something like in front of a room with a PowerPoint slide deck or something like that, or even if I'm not going to have a deck. I, I really start the same way. I define what I want to present. I want to present you know, 10 ways to grow your own food, 10 ways to become ungovernable, Ten ways to fill in the blank. Five ways to whatever it is. And then I generally try to come up with, I don't care if I'm doing ten or five or I'm doing something that has nothing to do with the number of steps. I try to come up with about ten, about ten bullet points. Maybe it's eight, maybe it's twelve, whatever it is. And then I make a slide for every bullet point. Okay? And I should be able to, if I'm competent in my material, do the entire presentation with just those eight to ten bullet points. If I know my material, and then everything that goes on those slides is either visual for the audience so they can see a picture of a thing, and then that picture carries weight or it explains how something goes together, or it's sub-bullets that are designed to keep me on track so I don't forget where my transitions are, and so that I don't plow ahead into my next slide. Because generally when you do know your material well, you've assembled it in a logical order. So, And this is one of my weaknesses as a presenter. I'll plow through 50% of my second slide. And that's with PowerPoint or Keynote or whatever, that, that, that's not using the tool that's in front of you of where you have the computer and you see what your next slide is so it keeps you from doing it. 
But that's kind of, that's it. That's that's what I do. Uh, next up, we have a question from Derek Bonpietro on choosing a generator when you want tri-fuel and you're worried about brand. What's happening, TSP listeners? This is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com, home of the Affordable DC Power Supply Solution. I've got a question from John on generators, so let's just get into it. How important is the brand of my generator and what best fits my needs? Details. I'm looking for a backup home generator before winter sets in and then becomes scarce. I prefer a tri-fuel because I have natural gas, but the tri-fuel options are very limited. Basically, I'm looking at Furman or Champion in the tri-fuel arena. Both are Chinese products and I can't shake the feeling that I'm making a pretty large mistake if I buy anything other than Duramax, Briggs, or something of that repute. I need at least 6,000 running watts and really don't want to spend more than $1,300. Not interested in Generac natural gas due to the cost and simply not having space for it. Am I crazy for thinking the Chinese-made products are innately inferior? I'd love to have this generator for a decade or longer, John. All right, John, a couple of things going on. One, your last statement is I'd love to have this generator for a decade or much longer. There's an old adage that you get something fast, cheap, and quality, but you can only pick two of those. You know, and that, that holds true for almost everything. So we're going to have to talk about this price point or your expectations and adjust one of them. Um, but let, let's back up. So availability, um, it's terrible. Your pick is going to be very, very limited. Inventory is going to be limited. And wait time is going to be huge. So I think in this situation, uh, availability is going to really dictate a lot as well. Uh, I just ordered a portable uh, almost three months ago from Generac and I'm a dealer and I waited two months and I kept getting the runaround of, Oh yeah, it's going to ship next week. It's going to ship next week. And after about five times, they told me it was going to ship. Uh, I called up and they said, Oh yeah, by the way, we just don't have enough parts to make this particular unit. And you're looking at another month and hopefully we'll have enough parts to assemble your unit. So I was looking for a diesel portable, I had a Yanmar engine. It's kind of an obscure portable, but I was on month two and I couldn't get a hold of one. So I went out and bought a Winco, which they had on the shelf and it was comparable and I had it within a week. So I'll talk a little bit further about that later, but basically like I picked one and I waited, I waited and I ended up going with something different based on inventory. All right. So you're looking at Chinese portables that are capable of running on natural gas. So a lot of the dual fuel portables are going to be configured for gasoline and then propane. A lot of them come with the, the connector to go right to a, like a barbecue size tank. So that's really where a lot of those are configured and you can convert them to natural gas. So you actually have to buy a kit, which looks like they were around 130, 150 bucks, which just has a different style regulator and that's going to uh, work for the natural gas. So you can actually just install it, run it on natural gas or gasoline. And in the event you wanted to use propane, you would just take one of the hoses off the carburetor and put it back on the original propane regulator, and then it's going to work on propane. Then you can convert back and go back and forth. But it's not something that's out of the box. So, for example, you're going to be like in the $1,000 or sub-$1,000 for a like five to eight or five to 9,000 watt portable dual fuel plus that kit. These are going to be all the Chinese brands, and I probably can't even list all of them. You had some of them like Furman, Champion, you know, that's going to be your sportsman's and things like that. They're all basically going to be the same. Most of these companies aren't making their own parts. So if you actually look really closely, the engines, the alternators, the carburetors, all of that stuff is going to be pretty similar. They just paint it a different color and assemble it differently in a different frame and call it their generator. Believe it or not, they're all the same. 
So you're going to be under the $1,000 price point or very close to it. Um, you know, you mentioned Duramax, Champion, Furman. Briggs & Stratton really isn't what it used to be when we talk about, like, home standby stuff. Uh, their home standby is terrible, and I would never buy one. But their portable stuff is probably completely different, and I'm assuming using the same parts as a lot of their competition. So I don't know if I would have that same recommendation. I, their home standbys, I stay away from. But the portable stuff is probably comparable to what you're already looking at. But your expectation should be that this is a product that is not going to live forever, is not going to have product or parts availability forever, and it's just built to a price point to get the job done. And that might be for a couple of days straight. You could have it for a couple of years and have no problems with it, but don't think you're going to go off-grid and run this thing for weeks and weeks and, and just think that you're going to get that kind of runtime out of it. You know, it's made to work in a pinch for an emergency situation, and they're built to that kind of price point. Now, I don't work on a lot of portables in the field. I do a lot of more home standby and, and stuff like that. But the portables that I have seen typically need a carburetor. So I've had a few champions come in that were do the dual fuel, and it just simply isn't running on one or the other. And at the end of the day, once the engine's maintained and the valves are adjusted, they typically need a carb replacement. Now, to pay a guy like me to come out and do it is very cost prohibitive on something that's five or six hundred dollars. For you to replace it, you know, the carb, we're talking 20, 30, no more than like 60 bucks, depending on the model. So I'd say if you're going to go with one of these Chinese models, pick up a spare carb. Be proficient at changing it. It's not difficult. Sure, it might take you an hour or so, and you got to get a couple tools out, but it's definitely a do-it-yourselfer level job. So if you're going to go that route, get a spare carb, and then you'll be safe. So in the event that it did fail to start, you've got a part on hand. Maybe even two of them. I mean, if they're 20, 30 bucks, just splurge and you're ready to rock and roll in about an hour. Now, when you say that you want to have something for a decade or much longer, I'm going to have to adjust your expectations on your price point. We're going to be talking a three, four, five X in that $1,300 price point because you're just not going to get something that has the quality you're looking for. So you're going to have to go with one or the other. So let's get some examples. So I just picked up a diesel portable. It's a Winco W6010. So it's basically a 5,000 watt portable diesel generator. Now, years ago, before the EPA shut them down, you could get a Chinese version. So it'd have like a Yanmar clone engine. And these things were notorious for running maybe a couple of hours or 10, or if you're lucky, 100 hours. The quality was terrible. So people would typically complain that they used it a couple of times and then it didn't work for whatever reason. Those things back in the day were $1,000, uh, They got a little more expensive before the EPA shut them down, but that was the price point, and that's what you got. Now, the the Winco that I just picked up, uh, the retail on it just a couple months ago was $4,700, give or take. Uh, I'm just looking right now, the retail's $5,500. So inflation's fake and it's transitory, guys. That's, you know, that's your multiplier. You're looking four to five times more expensive to get something. This has a quality Italian-made diesel engine, uh, which is a Lombardini, which is now made by Kohler. But they warranty the thing to run for 2,000 hours minimum. So the expectation is that just for warranty coverage, you're going to get 2,000 hours, not to mention what it's going to go above and beyond that if you keep the, the fuel system clean, the engine uh, maintained in service and all that. So, you know, that's what we're talking. Sure, you're going to spend a lot more money on that. But, I mean, realistically, it can last for decades. So to, to do more of an apples to apples, you were looking at like a 6,000 watt. So Winco's got the HPS 6000, which is the size that you're looking for. 
and this got a uh, it's a Honda GX, so it's it's a commercial grade engine, and your price point's thirty two hundred bucks. So you're looking at the thousand dollar price point for like a champion level quality unit. If you transfer that over to you know a Japanese Honda engine and more of a uh, you know commercial or industrial grade, triple the price. So realistically, you got to pick one or the other. You can't have both in this particular situation. I bought a Honda EM5000, which is a plain Jane gasoline 5000 watt portable. It's pretty pretty standard fare for that particular size. Uh, I bought that thing over 10 years ago. I think they're going for like 2,500 bucks now, and I still have it. It runs great. Fires up on the first pull. Parts are still available for it. So at that price point, it's more of an investment and not a throwaway. So I would say if you don't have more than 1300 bucks, go with the first one we went with. You know, get, get a Chinese one, get a couple spare carbs, and you'll be in okay shape. But if you're realistically looking to keep this thing for a very long time, make the upfront investment. And, you know, I would never say, like, finance it, but you can get some kind of payment plan for stuff like that. So, you know, if you'd like to see that piece for a long time, you know, you gotta you got to commit the funds to it. Expect my Kohler to last at least... 10 to 15 years and have thousands of hours of runtime. So, you know, if you translate that to buying a cheaper model that is not going to run that time and you have to replace it, it pays for itself. But again, like if you're only going to run this thing for a couple hours here and there, it doesn't make sense to spend that kind of money. So again, like you got to make that decision, but I think I laid out all those different options and all the, all the pros and cons to each of them. So John, good luck with your generator purchase. Any other questions? Get them over to Jack. We'll get an answer for you. Take care. Next up, I, I was really excited. I, I didn't have anything to do with Darby choosing to do this segment, but when I when I reached out to the expert panel this week and said, hey, guys, I need to finish out the year strong. I don't have enough material from some of y'all. If you don't have a, a question, then if you want to come up with something to talk about for uh, you know several minutes to ten minutes, uh, please submit uh, the, the, the segment and we'll get you on the air. And Darby came back with this, and I think this is a really good time to develop motivation. And I know many of you want to become motivated to have something in your life that is from a food production standpoint with some level of income from it, which is farming by its very definition. And a lot of times when we say farm, we think, you know, growing vegetables. And that can be a form of farming. We also farm livestock. I think of it a little bit more like ranching when you start adding cattle or whatever, but we're encompassing that whole thing here. And that's where Darby really excels is... The, the the concept of animal husbandry and raising animals to be the most nutritious food possible. He's going to talk to you about being a little bit motivated to maybe consider doing that yourself. Hey there, everybody. Darby Simpson of Grass-Fed Life. I'm not coming out and speaking with you today to answer an email question from anybody. I'm actually here to encourage you. And let me explain why. Um... For those of you that don't know, we radically changed our business model for our farm headed towards the end of 2020. Um, we had already been leaning towards doing away with retail sales and just going to more of a bulk-only model where we're selling a half cow, a whole pig. And in August of 2020, we did our last farmer's market. And in 2021, the only way you can buy our stuff is to buy it in bulk 
although we do still have one retailer that we've worked with for a number of years on the west side of Indianapolis who retails our stuff. But the point is we changed our business model. And as I said, we are already leaning that way. It was something we wanted to do for some contextual reasons to make it jive with life. But the insanity of the lockdowns with COVID-19 made that move feel so genius and it was so freeing uh, because we don't have to deal with all the restrictions of trying to sell at a market that we don't control and abide by rules that we may or may not agree with. Uh, and I know that this is a real frustration um, for a lot of people that I talk with that are in the grass-fed life community that have you know, been to our workshops that have, you know, taken our online courses and I, I chat with them and, and this is a struggle. Um, in some places it's not so bad in other places it's almost impossible to run a business. Here's where I want to encourage you. If you have been thinking about or have already begun to, to do livestock farming or really any kind, any kind of farming for that matter, but particularly livestock farming, As a side hustle, it's time to hit the accelerator. There are opportunities to sell in bulk like I have never seen. Now, certainly we experienced this in March and April of, of, of 2020 because the stores were out of meat. So suddenly everybody discovers uh, small local farms again. Hey, I need you to fill my freezer Because, you know, Walmart or Kroger or whoever is out of meat today. And I think, you know, definitely that went away as things came back in 2020. But now with supply chain issues, you know, the stores are starting to get a little bumpy again with, with supply. But the other thing that I've noticed is the cost is just astronomical. I, I, I mentioned we stopped retailing in August of 2020, uh, which is not that long ago as I record this. It's early November 2021. And a pack of our rib steaks, which is not certified organic, but for all intents and purposes, chemical-free pasture, 100% grass-fed, 100% finished on grass, black Angus beef. This is premium stuff. I'm proud of it. You know, our rib steaks, which is my personal favorite cut. If I can only have one cut of beef, that's it. Our rib steaks, we were selling for like, I don't know, $22 a pound, $23 a pound, something like that. Last week, I was in a Kroger in my hometown, which is a small town. It's 10,000 people. A conventionally raised, not particularly nice looking, Corn-fed rib steak was 18 bucks a pound. We are getting phone calls and emails literally four, five, six, seven a week of people who want to buy a whole cow right now. They want to buy a whole pig right now. We're done processing for the year. I've been sold out since pretty much April or May. Save for, you know, an order or two that kind of slipped through the cracks here and there. But by and large, by the end of April every year, I'm done. 
with my bulk sales. Like it's and it's been that way for 10 years, 12 years. But particularly now because I don't offer retail, I had a whole new group of bulk customers this year that used to be retail customers and now they're bulk customers because they want our stuff. Here's my point. If you've again started this process, you've been thinking about this process, this is the time to jump into this market or to scale up what you're doing. I promise you you're probably not going to have any issue selling stuff in 2022. Now, can I tell you for sure that 2023 is going to be as robust? No. But what I will tell you is that once people find good local food from someone they know and they know it's going to be there, they don't fall off your customer wagon very easily. Um, I, I have customers that have been buying their pork and beef from me for 10 years. Uh, probably 50% of my sales are customers that are 8, 9, 10, 11 years long with us. They just don't go away. Their needs might change. They might go from a whole pig to a half pig, back up to a whole pig, or same thing with a cow. But I'm telling you, this is the time where you can jump in, you can sell in bulk, you can build that customer base, and boy, is there a lot of value to a customer knowing my meat is secure. I don't have to worry about it. I get thank yous when our checks come in from our customers saying, thank you for filling up my freezer. I know I've got the protein my family needs for the next 12 months. That's worth a whole lot when the grocery store has a rib steak that's 18 bucks a pound if they even have the rib steak that day. Use that in your marketing. Use that in your conversations. If you've been dreaming about farming, the time for waiting is over. This is your opportunity. This is the best opportunity I've seen to hop into farming since I started. We had a lot of success early. We just happened to hit the curve, I think, at the right time where local food was on the upswing in central Indiana, and we did really well with farmer's markets for a lot of years, and now it's shifting where people are really getting back into bulk and it's strong, and there's way more demand than, than than I can fill. I've already got like six, eight people on a wait list for beef in 2022. It's not even going to be available till October. It's 12 months out. They're hoping to be able to to purchase beef come April 1st if one of my existing customers gives up their spot, which is highly unlikely. Now we'll have some we'll have some change over here and there. You know, there's going to be a couple of new customers, but by and large, it's, you know, it's it's super easy marketing for me. You know, I send out two emails and we've effectively done $80,000, $90,000 in gross sales through bulk. So again, I just want to encourage you, if you've been on the fence or, you know, to start or to scale up, now's your time. Get some butcher dates lined up. It's not too late, but it's getting close. My butcher's already full for 2022. 
that was the case the first week of September. But just to drive my point home, a conversation I had with my butcher two weeks ago, he told me that there are 40 applications in the state of Indiana to either build a new state-inspected facility or to take it from non-inspected to inspected. Those are just state facilities. We're not talking USDA. 40. There's 92 counties. Indiana's not that big of a state. This is not a flash in the pan. Guys, this is a trend. It is changing. It's going to be around for a while. Now's your time. Now's your opportunity to jump in and make your dream a reality. We've got resources to help you at grassfedlife.co. Check them out if you'd like. But the biggest thing I wanted you to take away from this today is that you probably will not have another opportunity this good anytime in the next 10 years. Thanks for listening. The only addition that I will throw on that is the opportunities and the motivations to do this are only going to get stronger in the future. Nothing is going to, is going to reduce the opportunity or the motivations to do this, whether it is for profit or it is for your family or maybe your family and your neighbors. So it is something definitely to consider if you have that particular bug. If not, take that motivation, that encouragement from Darby, and apply it to the thing that you want to do. Next up, you go on a ketogenic diet. You're eating meat and eggs and butter and occasionally some green vegetables and things like that. Are you in ketosis? Can you know for sure? Should you get a little pea strip and pee on it? Uh, no. Is there a way that you can actually know? Yeah. Do you need to worry about it? Well, maybe. Dr. Ken Berry on that subject. Hey, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry. I'm answering a question today for Peter from Virginia. Peter says, what's the best way to test for ketones? I'm assuming it's a blood meter. Is there one that's the best? Uh, also, as somebody getting back into keto after six months away, I want to know the best way to verify that I am in ketosis. I've been using urine strips, but they sometimes show strange results. Great question. First of all, if you're eating a very low-carbohydrate diet full of fatty meat and a little bit of veg and berries, if you want that, then you are, you are by definition a human being, and by eating a proper human diet, you're going to be in ketosis for most of the day. Checking this and tracking this is not necessary whatsoever. But if you are someone who loves to see numbers on a meter and loves to track such things, then I'd recommend the Keto Mojo meter. It, it checks your blood ketones and your blood glucose level. It's relatively affordable. None of the ketone meters are cheap. You're definitely wasting your money on urine ketone strips. They give very inaccurate results, and multiple things can give you falsely high or falsely low ketone readings. So don't waste money on urine strips. Get a blood meter if you absolutely want to check. But for everybody else listening, there's absolutely no reason to spend that money if you just want to eat a proper human diet and optimize your health. That's it, guys. This is Dr. Barry signing off. Well, next up, friends and neighbors, what the heck is a Ruth Stout, and what does a Ruth Stout have to do with composting? Paul Wheaton letting you know all about that from the wilds of Montana. 
Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton with Permies.com with another update from Wheaton Labs. And I'm here today with Gray. Say hi, Gray. Hello. <laughs> and we're going to talk about Ruth Stout composting. Um, <clears throat> and this is a this is a pretty different style. I think most people are used to regular composting where you take all your kitchen scraps and maybe some other things. And you throw them in a pile outside. In a heap. Yeah. And the general rule of thumb is that if it stinks... Then throw more carbon on it, yeah. which will be like wood chips or straw or something like that. You want to have the right balance of browns and greens. Um, I hate saying browns and greens. I, th- I like to think of it as carbons and nitrogens because yeah. some of your greens are poop, which are very brown. Okay. Like manures. All right. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I go with uh, carbons and nitrogens. Your carbons being yeah. like your wood chips and your straw, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, your nitrogens are going to be your like your manures or your green material. Um, yeah, and, like yeah. Squishy things like yeah. stinky things. Things that, that when yeah. they sit there. So basically, if your compost pile is out there and it's starting to stink. Add more carbons, and if your compost pile is out there doing nothing, you need to add more nitrogens. And yes, and there's all this turning and watering, like a lot care of work. Of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah that's I've what I don't a, like so much about it. I've done a lot of composting. I've turned a lot of piles. I I owned a couple of those compost tumblers for a while. Those are pretty cool. I even tried to make one that was like five times bigger because I felt like it didn't have enough in the compost tumbler. But, you know, that's getting into a whole other track. The thing is, Ruth's stout composting, way easier. Now, let's just talk about real quick, when you do regular composting, you have all this material that you put into the pile, and then the whole pile becomes much smaller. And depending on what you put in it, it could be 90% smaller. All right, Gray, where did it go? It's magic. <laughs> Poof. <laughs> it um well it bakes, you see, like the it gets really warm inside, like almost hot to the touch, and you can feel it if you've ever like just had a bunch of wood chips that were kind of green and like like the green and brown together, they'll start to bake and compost and drop down and get, get steamy. Yeah. Yeah, but when I bake a cake it gets bigger. Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> in in the oven, not a lot of cake is getting out, but in the compost pile there actually is a lot of breakdown that results in uh, off-gassing, denitrification. Stuff just goes into the atmosphere. Right. That's so the answer. Basically, the, the pile is made dominantly out of carbon and nitrogen, mm-hmm. which are the two big things we want in our soils, we desperately want in our soils. And uh, it, it goes in the atmosphere. The, the carbon, of course, into carbon dioxide, and then the nitrogen, I mean, 78% of the air that we breathe is made out of nitrogen. And so it just goes up there. It's called denitrification, as you pointed out. And so it's like, poof, it's gone. Instead of it being in our soil, it's up in the air where it's not doing us any good. And so with root stout composting, I mean, first we should say, what is Ruth stout composting gray? Well, I don't know who Ruth Stout is, but this person has a really good method that has, you know, been, you know, their name is attached to it now. So She's a, a famous gardener from like the 20s and 30s who's famous for gardening naked. Oh. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. And, but uh, she came up with the concept of no work gardening. Yeah. And part of it was this technique for composting. So instead of making a pile, she would take like her kitchen scraps. She'd go out to her garden, pull up some mulch, throw the kitchen scraps under the mulch, and slap the mulch back down and walk away, and she's done. That was it. No turning, no watering, no nothing. That really does sound like a lot less work. Uh, and so this is what we do. Um, and uh, basically, you take your kitchen scraps out, and we pick a different spot each time. Don't get too close to a plant, because this material 
uh, while it's composting can get really hot and it and it can burn the plant. It could be too hot for a plant. Um, in fact, some plants are going to not like having rootstock composting really close by, while other plants are going to love it. So your squashes, rhubarb, um, melons, there's a lot of stuff that's going to be like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, just put that right here. I'll take care of that. <laughs> other other plants are going to, like a tomato, it's going to be like, too hot, I've decided to die. Now, on the other hand, if you get just the right amount, like just close enough to the tomato plant, the t- tomato plant will go, dun da da dum but, I mean, it, it it goes on and on. I mean, it's complicated. But the big thing is, is like each time you put the roost out composting outside, put it in a different spot. Don't get too close to the plants. That's a pretty general rule. Um, if there's not mulch already there, what do you do? Then you mulch it. You mulch it over the compost so that way it just stays there, you know. Give it good contact with the soil below, and that way lots of earthworms will come and feast. Oh, right. That's, so, yeah, put the compostable material there, like the mm-hmm. kitchen scraps there. Throw, yeah. I don't know, a couple inches of wood chips over it. Yeah. And then it does seem like about six months later you'll find hundreds of earthworms in that spot. Mm-hmm. They are so happy. Um, so the big thing is is that <clears throat> less denitrification, uh, more of the nitrogen and carbon stays in the soil. It gets carried down by the earthworms and the other um, uh, critters and stuff like that. And it is totally aerobic, which is great for the soil. Uh, I, uh, no less effort. I'm trying to look at my little list here of all the notes that we want to make. Uh, oh, and you don't have to move it later. So like, once, so like if you have a compost pile and you got done turning it and watering it and caring for it, now you got to um, go and pick it all up and move it to where you want it. But it's already where you want it. You already did that. Um, so let's see. Oh, Last note, with lots of boots in the boot camp and each boot has their own garden patch, then we have less of a problem with getting the compost to go out. Yeah, there's added incentive. It's like your own patch to take care of. And if you can snag a full bucket of compost and just put it in a strategic location, yeah, you might uh, reap those benefits for yourself. And of course, you know, we all... Like, it's a community garden, and we all help each other out, so it's great. Right, but whoever gets it, you know, first, they they get to pick where it goes, which is usually on their own patch. And this this might not even be a a thing for you, but, like, the the addition of biochar, which Kyle, a previous boot, you know, (laughs) left with just, you know, having created a bunch of charcoal from, like, wood and stuff... Mm -hmm. um, it seems like, you know, that might be a good way to kind of create biochar on the fly. Put that, like, stuff right into your slimy kitchen scraps and then press it into your soil. <laughs> Makes home for the bacteria while you're feeding the worms. Makes sense. Thus adding the bio to the char. Yes, that's yeah. an important part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and if we've got a hugelkultur, it adds bio to the hugelkultur. Yeah. But that's another story for another day. All right, Jack, that's it. Thanks. So the quote of the day today and my anchor segment for today's show is based on a quote by John Muir, as in the Muir Wilderness. And we often think about sheep, and we think about sheep in a very, very negative light, so much that we have created a term, a modern term, a a word that we created is, is people to describe other people that seem to be asleep and you know, just asleep and sleepily following the, the, the sleepy trail of doing whatever they're told to do in front of them. And we call them what? The sheeple. 
The sheeple will just do whatever they're told. We got to get three more jabs. Bah, okay, I'll do it. Sheep are not quite as stupid as we think they are. We have to remember what a sheep is. A sheep, when we talk about them that way, is a domesticated animal. It's an animal that we decided that we would um, train and teach and domesticate and selectively breed and then feed it really, really well uh, on pasture and then move it from one place to another, and it would become very docile and very easy for a shepherd to move around. It makes sense. We created this animal. If you think sheep are stupid or you think that sheep in general will just let people do whatever they want and follow them wherever they go... I have a suggestion. Go hunting for wild sheep and see how that works out for you. It is one of the most challenging hunts in the world. It's actually probably one of the hunts you have the most likelihood of ending up dead. Not because a sheep will kill you like a lion or a bear, but because where the sheep lives and where you go, the sheep is designed to be up on those cliff faces and, and you're not. And every year, sheep hunters... Uh, fall to their death or end up with very serious life-altering injuries. It's, it, they're not dumb. But we make them appear dumb. And how do we do that? Well, what John Muir said about this is sheep, when hungry, like people are ungovernable. When you get a sheep and it's not well-fed, it stops being easy to lead around. And that's true. If you have sheep on bad pasture and they eventually eat everything that they can eat and there's nothing else to eat and you think you're going to just tell them where to go and what to do without food, you're wrong. All of a sudden, this docile creature will find a way. It becomes like a pig, like a feral pig. It will find a way out and it will go feral. And all over like South Texas and Southwest Texas, we have various forms of feral sheep. You don't have to draw a, a tag to hunt Rocky Mountain Bighorn or Dow sheep in, uh, in, in Alaska if you want to go on a sheep hunt. And there are some kind of canned hunts and all. We're not going to get into that today. But there's, there's parts of Texas with some wild sheep, and they're tough to hunt. Because they're not fed by people. So they become ungovernable. They go where they want and do what they want. Now, this can be taken two ways. We can look at this and say, this is how a society has the shit at the fan and breaks down into, into oblivion. So you get people hungry enough, all of a sudden the docile sheeple, will go shoot his next-door neighbor in the head to feed his children. That's true. But there's a thing about hunger. There's more than one type of hunger, folks. There's more than one type of hunger. I have a hunger. My hunger is to teach. I have a hunger for individual freedom and liberty. I have a lot of things in my life that make me a very hungry person. And that's a big part of what makes me ungovernable. My hunger for freedom, for independence, and for liberty, and for educating others in the same, is the driving hunger behind the actions that I take. And this is the thing about this. Sooner or later, societies do break down. And you don't get to pick your hunger anymore. Your hunger chooses you. So do you wish to choose your hunger, that which you pursue, as you become ungovernable? Or do you want to let life hand you your hunger, actual hunger? Or do you want to have life hand you a hunger for liberty in that you don't have it until it's taken away? Or do you want to preemptively strike in your goals for individual liberty and freedom? 
You can choose your hunger. Or it can be chosen for you. You are not a sheep. And that's where people do behave like sheep. That's where Mr. Muir's comment or quote was dead on. Most people do not break out of the fence and pursue their own life their own way until they're handed hunger in the belly. In the most awful way possible, whether it be for actual food or whether it be for actual freedom. But as a human being, you can do something that no other animal we have determined anyway on this planet can. You can think about tomorrow conceptually. And what this makes me think of, if 25 years ago you had come to me and said, Jack, what do you want for your son? What do you want your son to be when he grows up? And you phrased it that way. I would have said, what a horrible, horrible question. Why would you ask me such a thing? Because I would have taken it 25 years ago. Do you want him to grow up to be a doctor or a lawyer or an astronaut or a business person or something like that? But then being the person that I am and thinking around things, I would have said, you know what? I can give you an answer. One word. I want him to be happy. That's the answer that I would have given to the question. What do you want your son to be when he grows up? I want him to be happy. Flash forward 25 years later, my son's a grown man. He seems pretty happy. I'd like to believe that myself and Dorothy had some stuff to do with that. But in the end, the reason I would have given that answer 25 years ago is he chose his own path. And it was only right that he did so. As a, as a grown-ass man, I get one life where I get to make all the decisions and determine how that life turns out. That's mine. I don't get to live vicariously through my son. I don't get to say shit like, I want him to have what I didn't have. He has exactly what you had. Or his daughter, she has exactly what you had. The freedom to make the choices in your life. Your job is to make sure they're well-educated enough in the way of the world by the time they walk out the door and don't come home that night to sleep in bed anymore and live on their own, that they're able to do that. That's it. That's all you get. I have a different answer now. I have a much different answer to that same question. What do I want? My grandson and my granddaughter, who I get the blessing of being able to have an impact on on a daily basis through homeschooling, what do I want them to be when they grow up? I still have a one-word answer, and I think if you're answering this as a parent or a parent figure and you can't drill it down to one word, you're probably overstepping. You're probably overstepping on what you get to do in the life of another being. My answer now is ungovernable. I want to raise my grandchildren as I help to parent and raise them with their actual parents. I want to help them become ungovernable by the time they're adults. I don't mean needlessly rebellious. I don't want them to end up in a prison. If you end up in a prison, you, you are not ungovernable. You are highly governed in a prison. You have multiple layers. You govern me harder, daddy, all day long. No, I want to teach them to be so masterful of this matrix that we live in that every rule becomes an opportunity. See, that's the thing. Government only has two things, rules and force behind them. And they can only use so much force before they need another rule. And every time they add a rule, they start creating rules that conflict with each other, rules that create opportunities. And as we see those rules and we learn to master them for ourselves and how to bend them, to cheat them, 
when necessary to full-on rape the rules, and when to bend the rule back against the authority, we become ungovernable. And then you know what we become? A light. We become a shining light. And there is no place that the light of being ungovernable shines brighter than in the midst of tyranny. If today was a beautiful sunny day, it's not, it might be in a little bit, but just beautiful sunny day. Let's say it's June. The sun is directly overhead. We're in a great big open park. You're 150 yards away from me. I take out, I'm having a picnic with my wife, so just for ambience, I take out a candle and put in a candle holder, set it on a little pedestal in the middle of a picnic blanket, and I light that candle. You don't see it. You don't see that light, because light's flooded everywhere. Take that candle in the dark and light it, and you can see it from a mile away in total darkness. A little pinprick of light. And if you light enough candles, you can illuminate the entire space. Because tyranny is darkness. And liberty is light. And when light and dark come together, light destroys darkness. And it is the ungovernable in the midst of tyranny who are the light. That's my hunger. I would prefer to have that hunger than life hand me a hunger. And I would suggest that you find whatever your hunger may be. And once you do, you latch onto it and you pursue it before life gives you one. And with that, guys, we have uh, wrapped up another show. Hope you enjoyed all of it today. Let me remind you, if you want to help out the survival podcast and the work that we do here, you can always just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You go there, you help us out no matter what you buy. It is that time of year where there's last-minute scrambling for gifts, and um, a lot of things are in short supply or out of stock, or the sales aren't quite what they are in other years. I do have a great little low-cost item that I think any prepper in your life would enjoy and like. If they even have one, they wouldn't mind another one. Two is one, one is none. But you can give it to normies. You can give it to normies, too. And you know what it'll do? It'll get them a little bit more prepared and maybe start opening up their minds a little bit, right? It is the Streamlight MicroStream flashlight. It uses a single battery. Um, and most importantly, it doesn't use one of them specialized CR123 batteries. And, and here's my philosophy on this. This light uses a AAA battery. I've standardized on any device that will run on AAA or AA. Those are kind of my standard batteries. And I do that because I always have them. I do that because they're always in something that they can be robbed from if they're necessary. And because all of my rechargeables are AA's and AAA's. And I always have some, I always have some around. They're easy to find. They're in every store. I can go rip a, a, a double A out of a, a standard $6 yard light if I need one. And I believe in standardizing for most things and specializing when necessary. So that's why I love using with my EDC lights and things like that a double A AA or a triple A. Even when I go into the world of rechargeables, I like a light that's a rechargeable light that the battery pack that goes inside of the can be replaced as one or two or three double or triple A's. 
And you'll see that in all my recommendations. Uh, I even recommend a rechargeable version of the larger Streamlight. And literally, the battery pack is just two AAAs that you can just take out. And you put two rechargeable AAAs in it, it'll run. Uh, and it'll recharge. You can put two regular AAA alkaline in it, and it'll run, but it won't recharge. So that's standardization. Now, this light, I'm going to tell you, I originally recommended the uh, Streamlight Stylus Pro. I still do. It uses two, so the battery uh, life is longer, right? You have more of a reserve. But Nicole said, those things suck. And I said, what do you mean they suck? I've been recommending for 10 years. Nobody complains about them. She goes, you don't understand. Girl jeans have stupid little non-pockets in them, and they won't fit. So that's what exposed me to this light. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people want this kind of form factor will go with the O-Light, which is a little bit of a brighter light, but it uses a specialized battery. This uses a standard battery, and it's on sale right now for $18. That's 39% off retail. It is a great, bright little light, and it is an exceptional um, EDC light. I still personally carry the Stylus Pro uh, because I don't have non-pocket jeans, but I can see a lot of reasons somebody might want a more compact version. Check this thing out. It is well-made. I have been recommending Streamlight products For longer than T-spazzes exist, I have no complaints from anybody about them at all. I guess you can eventually wear things out, but I've seen people carrying them around with the paint wore off them, and they're eight, nine years old. Um, I don't ever have them that long because I end up giving them to people. But, oh, that's pretty cool. And I'll give well, I'll give these things away to spread preparedness because what will inevitably happen is you need a light, no one has one, and you do, and there's this little thing, and it's got this really bright light, and they're like, oh, hey, if you'll carry it, I'll give it to you. That's the deal I always make. So consider this as a Christmas gift, consider it as a stocking stuff, or consider it adding it to your own EDC. And remember, you can help support the Survival Podcast and the work we do, no matter what you buy, if you start your online shopping simply at tspaz.com. So, Song of the Day, last one of the week, rounding out the music from Five Times August. And again, I really appreciate this band and what they're doing. Their philosophy on distributing their music, by the way, is download it and re-upload it and share it everywhere. They get it. They get it. And this is protest music, the way that musicians used to protest before they all got woke and became conformists. And this was one I was, you know, the first three I played this week, I knew all three of those were going to get played. And then I kind of got down to the last two or three songs on their site right now, and like, well, which one do I play? And I try not to be overtly political here. But I think there is no greater right in America than to criticize the President of the United States no matter who he may be at any time. Because the man has exceptional power and it is largely unchecked and it can be extremely disastrous and the last thing we need is for that to be the case and not be able to call them out. This song is called Joe. And it calls them out really well. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Where you going with that gun in your hand? You stripped the rat from an American But leave it locked and loaded for the Taliban Hey Joe Where you going with that blood on your hands? Heard you say it, it was on the news You're the president, the buck stops with you Now there 
ain't no mommy and there ain't no dad Cause you wrapped them up in the American flag Thirteen kids but you stopped the war And there ain't no sense going back for more Cause hey Joe, we did it 81 million votes Hey Joe, where you going? Why you moving so slow? Prop you up on the TV screen But forget your job What flavor ice cream is that? And hey Joe Where you going? Do you even know? Come on man Not a joke Here's the deal The country's broke You wander around like you're fucking lost So check your watch, turn your back Set us up for the big attack Hey Joe, we did it 81 million votes Hey Joe, so where you going with that gun in your hand? Joe, where you going with all that blood on your 